what have you decided brings great meaning to your life? Mm. Yeah. I don't want to narrow you down to a single yeah. sentence, well, but what brings meaning to you? So I can, and I, and I, I think the, the pathway to discover the meaning of life is to understand, discover, identify, connect with personal values. I think that clarification of values is a lifelong process. If you want to love, you also have to be open to being hurt. You can't love without being hurt because I'm an imperfect person and if I love you, I love imperfectly. You're an imperfect person and so your loving is going to also be imperfect. So it's never going to work out like it does in Hollywood. Ken, where do you start if you want to find purpose? If you want to be able to wake up every day and to know what's important to you, where do you start? Clarify, connect with and pursue your personal values. Hey, you've just joined A Journey with Bernie. Greetings, my dear friends, and thank you so much for joining me and today's wonderful guest, My name is Bernie Kelly, and I'm your very enthusiastic show host. Why? Because I woke up this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm still breathing. I've been expressing my joy for life as a corporate leadership and team building coach for 30 years now. But I've also loved working in the schools, guiding students and our young ones, just to open up their eyes to see more, to do more to be more. I'm an explorer who wants to take you and them to the summit of Kilimanjaro. Hey, how about the base of Mount Everest or the intrigue of the Peruvian Machu Picchu or that epic spiritual adventure across Northern Spain, the Camino? Yes, I'm a lover of nature and I am a consumer of life. And that's why this podcast exists. You see, it's a simple exploration of what you and I need to do to find greater love for self, to inspire our own sustainable inner happiness, and to discover greater meaning in our humble lives. Of course, I don't have the answers, but that's why each week you and I will explore the life purpose and the perspectives and paradigms of our wonderful podcast guests who will share with us their strategies their thoughts, their actions that just might bring greater meaning to our lives. Hey, we're all on this journey, folks. So today, let's together put on our hat of curiosity and explore life's possibilities. And let's do it together on this episode of A Journey with Bernie. Dear listeners and dear friends, thank you ever so much for joining a journey with Bernie. I hope you don't mind me sharing my excitement at this hour, our first episode. 
it's been a, a dream for a long time, and now it, it comes to a reality. So I thank you for giving me the, the opportunity and the grace to be able to uh, start this journey. And for our first episode, can I just be absolutely honest with you? I'm not even sure I know how to introduce this guest. One thing is certain is that future guests, I'm not inclined to accept long-winded bios and resumes and just read out everything that's on that page. But in this particular case, I feel that it's necessary so that you, the listener, can understand the caliber of our first guest for me just to refer to the bio of uh, Kenneth Packenham. Kenneth Packenham is an emeritus, oh, I got it right, an emeritus professor of the clinical and health psychology in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. His work spans 40 years. He has been inspired by the resilience of people faced with adversity, and he's focused on helping them find greater growth in the context of their hardship. 170 publications. Now, in addition to those publications, his book, The Trauma Banquet, is well worth a read. It is a sensational story and a sensational education for people. 9,500 citations of his work, 70 conference presentations, three research awards, three teaching awards, and more than $3 million Ken has attracted of competitive grant funding. He is a leader, without doubt, in the application of positive frameworks helping people to cope with adversity. Governments need his research to help them to decide on policies. There are 60 postgraduate students that have been fortunate enough to have Kenneth Packenham supervise their research. He's the director of the University of Queensland Psychology Clinic for seven years, honours convener for three years. Ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners, thank you for being there, but please sit back and listen to a wonderful experience with Ken Packenham. Ken, how the Daffy Duck are you? I'm well. Thank you <laughs> for that introduction. <laughs> I had to do that because mm. your breadth of life, mm. there's so much experience in it mm. that I just didn't want the listener to miss out. And yeah. knowing me, I try to scan over those things to get into the yeah. story. And yet you've had such a full life. Yeah. Jimmy. I have, and what you've summarised really is the academic part of my life, but the trauma banquet, my memoir, really gives voice to the other part of my life, which is all of my life. Sure. And we're going to get to that because <laughs> that makes so much of your work even more fascinating, but yeah. it makes you yeah. even more endearing and there's so much to learn learn from you. But first of all, I want to mention something that's not in your bio because mm. I want an explanation of it. Mm-hmm. 
I first met you playing a game of cards, yes. and I'm going to let the listeners know you are the slowest player yes. I have ever, ever, ever met. Yes. Right. Well, you didn't, you wouldn't put a card down unless yes. you had a joke. Yes. Who is that Ken Packenham? So that was tactical. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was, worked. It, it was frustrated fun. me. <laughs> it, it, it was. It was spontaneous. It was a spontaneous strategy. And do you know what I was doing? I was prolonging the experience to savour it. Yeah, it's almost like you're partly answering a question that's etching away in the back of my mind. And I'm thinking about hundreds of guests that I that, that I trust are going to follow this first episode. And I don't think that I will ask them this question in the first 10 minutes that I'm about to ask you. Savouring life. Mm. What have you concluded after 70 years and the journey that most people don't know about yet? What have you concluded is the meaning of life or what do you believe we should be pursuing that brings great meaning to our mm. lives. So I think the meaning of life is individually discovered. So there's no one size fits all. This is what the meaning of life is. In my view, I think the meaning of life is discovered for the rest of our lives by the individual. May I ask, therefore, if that is the case, just out of interest, what have you decided brings great meaning to your life? Mm. Yeah, I don't want to narrow you down to a single yeah. sentence, well, but what brings meaning to you? So I can, and I and I I think the the pathway to discover the meaning of life is to understand, discover, identify connect with personal values. I get this feeling when I've met you, this is the third time now, that you have great clarity around your values because I see that in this solidarity, the, the essence of the person that I've experienced on three occasions now. Therefore, without selling a value to anybody, is it okay for me to ask, what are two, three, or four values that you hold dearly that are just uncompromisable for you? So I think one of them, for me personally, being authentic, being true to myself, even when being true to myself may elicit rejection. So authenticity has been uh, one of my values, and sometimes that's not so difficult. Sometimes it's extremely painful to give expression to authenticity. The other would be being adventurous. I love being adventurous. And that's not necessarily just about physical adventure like climbing mountains, although I, I like climbing the Himalayas, for example. Um, I think being adventurous is also, for me, pushing myself out of my emotional 
psychological and physical comfort zone wow. and exploring because wow. um, that's been adventurous, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. It's, it's going outside of what's comfortable yeah. and think, oh, what's there? So being adventurous has been really important. And I think the other important thing is acceptance and openness and acceptance to people and to life. There's so much in just those three three values. Let's go back to authenticity. Mm. For whatever reason, I'm reminded of a book that's doing the rounds at the moment. It's called The Courage to Be Disliked and Forgive Me. I can't think of the two Japanese authors who, who wrote that book. But there's something in that great courage to be self, to be so real that you run the risk of people not being able to handle your realness. Is that the challenge for many of us? It can be. And I think the challenge inherent in pursuing personal values, whether it's authenticity, uh, whether it's nurturing, whatever it is, is that is that it may elicit rejection or judgment from others, or it may elicit anxiety, self-doubt about whether I can do that. And, and so then we turn around, turn away from our values, and uh, that's when disconnection can occur. I just remembered that that, uh, that book was by Fumitaki Kago, or Koga, and Ichiro Kishimini. And that's a book, if anybody's listening here, that would be truly well worthwhile uh, getting in touch with. Hey, the Himalayas, what have you done in the Himalayas? I went with my daughter on a, a very long trek. It was about 20-odd days, reached a summit of 5,500 metres above sea level. I was 65 experienced a bit of challenging at one point because I experienced some altitude sickness and uh, had to make a choice about whether I would continue or not. Anyway, got through the difficult night, woke up the next morning, still breathing okay, my heart was going okay, and reached the summit. Think about that adventure because the Himalayas, special place. It is. Isn't it? You know, it's Na- on top of the world. Nepal. Mm. Master environment. I mm. hope you don't mind me just mm. intervening for a moment. Mm. But if anybody's no, listening to this, mm-hmm. I'm taking a group to the Himalayas in May, on uh, May the 23rd, and another group in September the 25th. We're so looking forward to the great journey to Everest Base Camp. Got another group of people. Yes, I'll be inviting you, that's for certain, to Mera Peak, which is the highest trekkable peak in the Kumbu region of the Himalayas. I have a feeling 5,000 metres you were talking about before. Was that Annapurna's? Yes. Yeah, wonderful, yes. wonderful area outside of Pokhara. Yes. And that area there. Yes. What did you learn from being in, in the presence of that awesome environment? The environment was extraordinary because it's so high up. The air is so clean and everything is clear. 
And in a sense, then there's also a clear space to think and to reflect and to connect with nature and the world around us. It was also extraordinary to be walking day after day with my daughter and to just hear the treading of boots on the <laughs> ground, the crunch, 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 and the breathing, my breathing, her breathing, and it's completely silent. Of course, you you know, this is hours and hours every day. So, yeah, all of those things were really powerful and important. The space to reflect. Space. Then throw in, Nepal's a very Buddhist country. It's not, there's a lot of Hinduism in in Nepal as well. But what about the Sherpa? You know, the beauty of the Sherpa people too. They add add to it. They're almost congruent with the, the whole environment. Elaborate a little bit more on the power and the value of that space. It's almost something that I can see in your face that you 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 so treasured. But should we be seeking it more? And if so, what is the value of it? So I, I'm going to sort of go back and summarise a couple of things because I'm adding a number of very practical strategies that you and I and the listeners can engage in. I've talked about savoring, and there are specific savoring techniques. You can Google them. I've talked about pursuing, identifying, clarifying, and connecting with values. And I think the another strategy, which you just now asked me about, is taking time out to reflect. And there's different ways to do that. Some people like walking in nature, where there's generally uh, quietness apart from the natural sounds of water or birds or wind or trees, but there's a space. And so that's a great opportunity or place to reflect. But you can, you can reflect going for a walk at the beach or along the river or even at a park or even just taking time out in a room in your house, your favourite room, where you can reflect And you can reflect in any way. You can just sit and think and ponder. You could meditate. You could do mindfulness. You could lie down. You could sit up. But important to take time out, reflect, stop, take, and connect to yourself, inner self, and what's around. Do you do that daily? Yes, I walk every day, sometimes I run, and in the walking or running outdoors, and I'm usually in a, a space by, the, by a river or in a park or in the bush, then that gives me the time to reflect, ponder, connect, and get grounded. What time of day do you do that out of interest? Do you do that morning, it's afternoon? It's always a morning. That's, so I like to start the day with that reflective, grounding, connecting process. Is this 5.30, 6 o'clock? It varies. Depends what I've done the night before. (laughs) If I've played cards with you 
and our mutual friends, which becomes a long night. It's probably not till 10 a.m. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> the benefit of 70, yeah. being 70, yeah. waking up later. Later, yeah. 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 But I, thought, I, I think I hear you saying there is real value in starting a day finding that space. Yeah. It almost anchors you for the rest of the day. Mm. There is, but again, it's not a case of one size fits all. Sure. So for some people, yeah. that time, that reflective time is better positioned somewhere else in the day. Yeah. And it can be positioned in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I know some people just love to get up and run. Yeah. Exercise. Yeah. Uh, whereas I, I prefer to exercise at the end of the day yeah. because I really value that yeah. reflective time early in the morning because it sets me up for the day. But I know plenty of people there just got to go and put their boots on and go for a run and get very, very physical very quickly. Or some people, so that's a, a bit of a male thing to talk about exercise and running and things. So there's other ways of doing that. Some people paint. Sure. Some people listen to music or play music. Love it. Uh, some people cook. Yeah. Some people engage with a pet or an animal. So there's all sorts of different ways. And the, the, the method doesn't matter. It's the process that's important. And the process that's important is reflecting on whatever it is you feel you need to reflect on, connect with inner stuff within yourself, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what's happening to your body, and connecting with the external environment, slowing down. Love it. Love it. And thank you for broadening my perspective on all those processes. And I, I do feel, however, the one big message is value your process and value it regularly to take time out to find that space so that you can ignite an inner quiet which gives you opportunity to create clarity for yourself. Yes, it helps you to clarify values. It helps to connect with your personal values. It helps to Clarify what's authentic and true to yourself. You don't want to go too far from self, from who you are. Lovely. From the life that is within you. Lovely, yeah. Used the word adventure before uh, as value. It was the second value you spoke about. One of my values, yeah. But when you described it, you you didn't use the word stepping out of comfort zone, but I think that's what you meant. Can you speak to us about the importance, please, and the value of seeking opportunity to stretch yourself, go into physical or emotional or spiritual adventure. Yeah. So you've got to have a reason to do that. So with all of this, the question is, why would you do it? Why would you stretch yourself? I mean, you could say, well, stretching yourself is good for growth. You don't grow unless you take a risk. A child doesn't learn to walk unless it crawls and fumbles and falls and grazes itself occasionally. So long as that's their calculated, sensible risks, 
The fact is the child doesn't grow without some degree of stretching out and taking risk. And so that's the same for the rest of our life. When I'm 70, as I'm 70, for me to continue to grow as I want to, I need to keep on taking risks and and go out of my comfort zone. But the question is, why and for what purpose? So just to say, oh, well, that's how you grow, in my thinking, that's not enough. That's not going to motivate me. I want to know what is worth me feeling anxious, me feeling concerned that I might fail, me grappling with self-doubt. I want to know why is it worth dealing with all of that, stepping out into the unknown or beyond my comfort zone? What's there? And and the answer to that is my <laughs> values. So, Bernie, we're just going to go keep coming back to what I think is critical, and that is discovering your personal values, because that is the engine for your life. That's what gives you direction. That gives you the reason to experience discomfort in stepping out of your comfort zone. But, but just to clarify that, I, I think what I'm hearing there is, is by stepping outside of your comfort zone, you may be placing yourself in a position where you can discover and clarify values. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that is the lighthouse still gives direction. Mm. And so stretching that metaphor to us, values give us life direction. Mm. Even when we go through tough times, we will still have a sense of purpose. Maybe we fumble a bit and maybe we even slow down or turn away but still in my heart, mm. still in my heart, I have this clear direction mm. of where I want to go. Yeah, you, you've just opened. Yeah, you've opened up my mind there because I've not had this thought before, in which living your values is almost your purpose. Yes, I've always it is. heard the word purpose connected with something that we're meant to do. Uh, yes, like that's it's our, like, like goals. our professional, yeah, yeah, like our, but it's almost as if what we do is a manifestation of doing our values. Yes, <laughs> yes, and so it's values informed doing. I'll elaborate doing, on that. That's a key but it's phrase. values informed doing. So, so really, what we just naturally tend to talk more about is our goals. Yeah, yeah. What we're going to do, what yeah. action we're going to take tomorrow, next year, the yeah. next day. What are my goals in my career, yeah. my relationships, what ha- money, whatever. Yeah. So we talk a lot about goals and that's what we've been taught a lot about at school and in, in society and through marketing and so on. What makes pursuing goals more fulfilling and meaningful is when those goals are in the pursuit of values. So when I've chosen a goal oh, wow. because of a wow. value, 
So, like, I can tell you the values that informed my decision to go to the Himalayas. I can tell you about, which was a goal. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you about the values that informed my goal to do a particular degree. Yeah. I can tell you about my values that inform my choice to attend some social event this yes. week. Yeah. And on yeah. and on and yeah. on and on. Yeah. But the question is, fulfillment comes through this values-informed living. Dear listeners, I wish you could feel what I'm feeling here because I'm having light bulb moments in my life from just listening to Ken. Try this for a thought, Ken. I, 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 it's almost as if you're saying what you do, your activities, even your career, if they are the manifestation of your values, like almost everything that you do becomes an extension. I love that word, extension of who you are. And I would have thought that if every day isn't in everything that you do is an extension of who you are, that's surely the definition of solidarity. It's like a great comfort because everything you do is the essence of you. Reflective of your values. It has meaning. Yeah. So that's the, that's almost like a, a desired place to get to. Yeah. Activity as an extension of who I am defined clearly by my values. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. It is very powerful. Very mm. powerful. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. You know, I include in the courses that I used to coordinate and teach into at university work around values for my students. So these are young, um, mostly young emerging adults, uh, but with some mature age people. And actually, it doesn't really matter about age because values are relevant at all times of our life. And so this this challenge that I would put Mm. to my students about why are they doing the course? Mm. Why are they here? Mm. Why are they at university? Why are they getting an education? Mm. You know, where are they going? So, and this is all about values. What's steering their choices to do a course or not? What's steering their choices to go to university or not? What's steering their courses to create a career in a particular direction? What's steering that? Mm-hmm. I would like for my students the best, so I want them to be directed by their personal values. Wonderful. Not their parents' values. Yeah. Yes. Not the values yes. of me as their teacher. Yes. And not those of the university, but their chosen personal values. Yes. And the choice of personal values will, of course, be influenced somewhat by family, by community, by friends, by peers, by culture, by religion, and so on. But still, I have to find within myself, and I would challenge you to as well, to find within yourself your own personal unique stamp on your values. Ken, of course, we're talking about your perspective. You're a 70-year-old man 
been in the world of psychology for such a long period of your life. But of course, arriving at this place has history, your own history, your own journey. And that, of course, starts at a, at a very young age. And um, in your bio and your uh, preparation for this podcast, do you mind if I just read out a, a paragraph which describes an early part of your life? And if mm. you don't mind, sure. I'll get you to elaborate. Yeah. And if you can even relate it to what we've been talking about, that would be wonderful. Kenneth Packenham, brutal and relentless domestic violence carved his early childhood. Mm-hmm. His emerging gender fluidity and your sexual diversity mystified and enraged your father and your peers. Ken, something, um, I'm not going to know the word remarkable, it's not the right word, something catastrophic happened when you were 13. I don't think it's for me to tell that story. Do you mind if I refer to you, please? So, um, life dealt me. Uh, a difficult set of cards in in the early part of my growing up, and so I was raised in a in a family with domestic violence, a very violent father. It was so relentless and so horrific that my mother, at age fifty seven committed suicide by drinking a bottle of poison, DDT poison. And um, I was the youngest of five children, and I was at home in the bedroom next to hers. My father was sleeping in a different room that that previous night. And uh, so... I won't go into the details, but essentially I I uh, went through my mother's dying on the bed from poison. So if you can imagine, death from self-imposed poisoning is pretty ugly physically. It's smelly. It's horrible to see. And I was 13, just turned 13. And so I essentially lay with my mother on her bed as she died beside me. So that, that, yeah, that was a pretty powerful experience. And that came on the back of relentless domestic violence Mm. uh, ever since I was born. How do you respond to that? Like, like, I'm not talking about in the, in the instant. But over immediate time, months, six months, one year, who do you become as a result of that? So it was a really, well, as you can imagine, it was profoundly traumatic, profoundly uh, painful in so many ways. But some months after that, and, and I had this sense that, this experience uh, of my mother's suicide would be very formative uh, and for the rest of my life. And so 
I I wanted to um, make as much, get as much out of this experience as I possibly could. Ken, stop! You were five. No, I was thirteen. Oh, I apologise. So just no. turned thirteen. Yeah. Right. So I, I was just the, just becoming wrong, yeah. just becoming a um yeah. a teenager. A teenager. Yeah. And so I decided to, and I wrote it in a little journal because I used How to write. How long after your mother's journal. death did you so write this? So this is probably journal? several months after it. So you know, I'd I'd then moved in with my eldest brother and his wife and their young children. So I'd now moved in. You know, to to an, a new adopted sort of family situation, and trying to settle back into school and and life. But of course, this huge pain and this huge trauma was so fresh and so so real. But somehow, in that context, and I used to do a lot of journaling. I used to, I just naturally liked to write before Mum's passing, or. Yeah, no, I, 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 I sort of, I had an interest in writing, which is a self-reflective process. So I, I continued that more when my mother died because I had so much emotional turmoil and pain. I needed to express it. Mm-hmm. And there were very few people I could talk to because no one wanted to discuss my mother's suicide because it was taboo. It was a taboo topic. So I used to write, and one of the things I wrote was, I am going to extract every drop of life out of my difficulties. How do you do that? And what did you become as a result of that? A monster. I became a wonderful monster, hopefully. But I I became monstrous inside. If I had the power, the capacity, the courage, uh, the force to face one of the most difficult things in life, you know, your mother, whom I love, yeah. who was my protector from my violent father, if I could face and, and, and uh, yeah, face that enormous pain and that incident, I could face anything. Can, can we play with the word monster for the moment? Because I've got it in the back of my mind, like Superman. Yeah. Um, you became, you you wanted to become almost, is it bigger than life? You wanted to become as capable of handling anything and everything in life and you could control it because even this in unbelievable traumatic moment was not going to squash you. It was not going to dilute you. Yeah. So as I reflect as an older person, and this is an important aspect of my memoir, my book, the idea of actually extracting life out of pain is simply a powerful, creative energizing capacity that humans have. How? And How do you do it? So you do it. Well, I did it. This is like me just as a 13-year-old. What I did is I would, I wouldn't, I didn't run away from the images and the memories of my mother. 
I didn't run away from the deep sadness and sorrow and emotional pain that I had in relation to my mother's passing. I stayed with it. I wrote about it. Where possible, I would talk about it. I never ran away from my pain. I would run away for a little t- for a time, sure, but I would eventually come back. Yeah, yeah. Running away from pain sometimes is important because that's how you catch your breath. Yes, yes, and and just get some rest and respite. Yes, but I never did that for too long. Mm. I always came back to the memories that would still keep coming up and all the consequences, the traumatic consequences that I experienced as a result of my mother's death. I never ran away from it. I'm imagining you never ran away from it because there was still something inside of you that valued the glory of life, that valued living that yes. you'd being fully alive. You, some people surely under such trauma would get squashed for life. But somehow you hung on to there was still something magical about yeah. being alive. Our natural instinct is to run away from pain. And there's something, there's some common sense around that. Yeah. And running away from pain, as I mentioned before, for a time and purposefully can be helpful. But to run away from personal pain forever is running away from yourself. Wow. So if you run away from your personal pain, you are essentially running away from yourself. And you're right, there is life within pain. There is life within pleasure. There is life within all of my experiences because I live. So if I run away from pain, I'm running away from an important aspect of my life. I'm running away from part of my living, part of my life. So that's not very helpful. Mm. And um, I don't know. I just sort of intuitively just thought I was not going to let this go because if I ran away from it, I would be running away from my mother, my relationship with her, my memories of her. Yeah. I would, would be running away from this trauma, this powerful experience that was difficult and hard, but nevertheless it was. Mm. Mm. And so what's the point of running away from reality? Mm. Mm. Reality will always win (laughs) because the physical reality around us is undeniable. Did the pain drive you to do things that you may not otherwise have done? Had you not had the pain? Did it make you so invincible that you became more adventurous? Uh, Did it become a force that you used valuably? Not necessarily invincible, but the courage to face up to my mother's death and the consequences of that for me encouraged my sense of personal strength. Wow. That I could 
face my emotions, that I could know my emotions, that I could stand in the face of fear and pain. Now, keep in mind that this was in the 50s and 60s. I was born in New Zealand, so this was my early childhood in New Zealand. I was male, and I was happy to be male, and I am so now, and I had three brothers and a father, all of whom played rugby, wrestling, boxing, swimming, cricket, tennis. So the typical macho, oka, male, you know, Mm. a Kiwi male, Australian male Mm. in a way. And so that wasn't typical of what males did. They didn't self-reflect. Yes. Males didn't, you know, boys don't cry. Boys don't show emotions, tenderness, Mm. sadness, because that's not being tough. That's not being male. So I broke all of the rules. Mm. I broke all of the rules about what a male is supposed to do. And there was benefit in that. Absolutely, because we know, the research shows, that to deny yourself of the truth of what you feel, even if that's sadness and that produces tears, whether you're male or female, to deny that is unhealthy for your body and for your mind. So you use journalism? I used journaling. You used tears? I used used tears. People? And I talked. Yeah? I wrote poetry. I started to write prose. So my writing went more than just journaling. Mm. I I played with poetry. Mm. It wasn't very good, but I I didn't care. So I used to sit in and uh, write poetry, and I would write little stories, Um, Mm. and I would talk. And... I would express my feelings. So mm. crying mm. Um, would often occur spontaneously. I would just, you know, because of the deep sorrow I felt, I would um, often just spontaneously mm. sob, mm. sob from mm. right inside of my stomach. Yeah. Despite the fact that at this tender age, I regard 13, yeah, you know, 14, 15, age. it's a tender yeah. age. And you already intuitively aware of the opportunity that pain and chaos was giving you to perhaps live more fully. Mm. It still wasn't the rescuing strategy because if I may, from your wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary book, The Trauma Banquet, just relate a part of your story so that our listeners can be aware of what followed after this traumatic event. It says here, cared for by an older sibling in the midst of a shattered family, I suffered violent beatings at high school that punished my gender and sexual diversity. So, Mm. You're now becoming aware that you're not quite the son that your father wanted. Mm. A deep desire to find meaning in your suffering actually led you to a roller coaster of drug addiction, hippie communal living, homelessness. Wow. 
and the use of sex for material survival. Mm. Just give us a little bit more colour as to that aspect of your life. So, and how it uh, came about. Yeah. Look, the harsh reality is even though um, I had reasonably good uh, coping strategies uh, to deal with my mother's death and the trauma, and, and the core and the and strategy, as I mentioned before, was this not running away from it, accepting it. But however, the reality is, is that the nature of trauma is such, particularly when you experience it at a young age, when you're still forming as a, as a young person, emotionally, cognitively, physically, and personally, your sense of self is still forming. When that gets blown up by an incident like my mother's suicide and her death, the fallout for that from that occurs for the rest of my life, mm. as it does now at age 70, even with all of my psychological skills, etc. Mm. So this is just the undeniable outworking of trauma. So, you know, 17, 18, 19 yeah, years of age. Plenty of distractions. I'm, there. I'm exploring, I'm trying to understand yeah. how, how all of this works. Yeah. So I was vulnerable. Yeah. My age, vulnerable because of the trauma. Yeah. And so I start experimenting with drugs. I start experimenting with drug using communities. I start experimenting with all sorts of different lifestyles. Mm. I'm also trying to understand how my diverse sexuality and gender fluidity fits in and, mm. and, and how do I manage that? And yes, yeah, so I got tossed to and fro, homelessness, living on the streets and, you know, doing tough things mm. to survive. Mm. And yet through all of that, you still found, dare I say, a way out. Yeah, it was a little bit about, you know, how life unfolds. So there's a bit of randomness about all of this. You know, we don't control life perfectly. And so circumstances, people, situations move in and out of our life. And one of my siblings, my sister, was visiting Australia and she was a Christian. She was on her way to a mission field. I spent time with her. I was in a very bad way physically, mentally. My drug using, my lifestyle was pretty bad. So I met her in Brisbane. A Christian family put me up, her up and me up. Mm. And so I spent a week. And essentially, to cut a long story short, because it's all in the book, but I, I had three meals a day. I had a house, I had shelter, I had mm. safety. I had a family that accepted me, even though I was feral, but they accepted me on the condition and I figured the game that I would get converted, you see. Right. So anyway, the, to cut a long story short, I went through a conversion process. So this was the Pentecostal church or charismatic mm. church. Mm. So they have a strong sense, they have strong spiritual practices uh, that uh, recognize the supernatural. Mm. 
that recognize the spiritual dimension, you know, in my view, more directly than perhaps a lot of other Christian groups. Mm. Mm. So um, I I quite like that coming Mm. from a drug using, you know, Mm. I used to take all the psychedelic drugs. And so I was quite happy with outer world experiences. Mm. And um, so basically that whole conversion experience gave me a a stable lifestyle. Mm. It took me out of my street life and um, I, you know, got a job, I wore a watch, I caught public transport, I did all of this stuff that I hadn't done mm. for years. So I became a regular member of society and I was part of a community of people. Mm. Now, I'm listening to you here and I know you're not selling a particular religion to us at all, but I do hear you saying that you found a, 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 I don't like the word strategy, but I think you know what I mean. You found a strategy in spiritual belief that was able to rescue you from despair. Could you elaborate just talking about the power of belief and that spiritual connection, how important is that, was that, in order to help you and to help others find relief or find movement forward? Yes, I'm definitely, just to clarify, I'm just definitely not pushing a particular religion. And I'm definitely not pushing religion per se. I think that on reflection, what was really important to me uh, in that conversion experience was a reawakening, a reawakening of a sense of spirituality. And I had intuitively grasped that as a younger person because of my mother's influence. And she had developed cultured sense of spirituality. And so I had caught on to that as mm. a young child and and so this was a reawakening now at the age of 22, 23, of a sense of spirituality. And that was, that was very, very important in my recovery. Ken, define spirituality. Well, what do you actually mean by that? Look, it's a really, it's a tough one. It is, for me, it's, an acknowledgement and a connection with phenomena that is beyond material. And I think spirituality is experienced and cultivated and encouraged through a whole lot of different activities, including being with nature, including engaging in creative activities like painting, writing, dancing, singing, playing an instrument. It can be cultivated within relationships. Mm. It can be cultivated by engaging in various roles within community. And, of course... 
it can be cultivated mm. in what most people connect spirituality to, and that is religious practices. Yes, that's all of but that. But most people limit spirituality to religion. Mm. Spirituality mm. equals religion. It doesn't. It's much broader than that. And I regard myself as uh, in a spiritually oriented person, and I, I continue to cultivate my mm. spirituality, but I don't regard myself as religious. Mm, I get that. I get that. But can I, I, I hear in, in speaking particularly to our young people, and I hope there's many of them listening to this particular podcast, but I, I hear them use uh, the phrase, of, oh, I trust in the universe. I hear, I did a meditation program recently that spoke about the unified field. Mm. <laughs> I hear different terms for, for what almost sounds like a recognition of the same thing defined as an acknowledgement that we belong to uh, a presence, a something that's greater than self. Uh, others would say, I only have to look at the stars at the nighttime to say, oh, I'm not responsible for that. I don't think humankind is. Is there something greater than me? Uh, when I walk with nature and I breathe in the oxygen from the photosynthesis of leaves, <laughs> there's some connectedness there with something that's different than me. Is that Spirituality? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think I think that that sense of outsideness, otherness, beyond us, beyondness is part of spirituality. And actually it doesn't really matter what you call it, and it doesn't matter the words you use. And the reason why there are so many words that get thrown about for spirituality or for spiritual experiences is we are trying to use language to define something that is beyond our thought or yes. beyond language. So right, yes. language comes from our yes. head, right? Yes. Yes. You know, humans yes. created language, yes. but we're actually talking about something that's outside of our little... <laughs> What's in our head? It's hard to that nail, produces isn't it? language. <laughs> so we don't have to be fussy about the language or the terms. The most important thing is we actually engage in doing things and being in certain ways that cultivate and connect with spirituality. Yeah. And we each can do that in our own personal way. But in doing so, this is what fascinates me, in doing so, it recognizes that we are far more than a body. We are far more than our mind mm. that triggers yes. emotion. Yeah. We are a, a spiritual being. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We're connected to. You know, most people would acknowledge this transcendent part of self. That's why we have, you know, commonly used words like soul, spirit. Transcendence, silent witness, the inner voice, and different cultures, different languages. We all have these terms that point to this dimension that is beyond our physicality. Mm. So, how important do you, as Ken Packenham, and how important do you, 
as a clinical psychologist and as someone who is helping people find greater life, particularly from their adversities, how important do you believe that it is for people to recognize and understand that spiritual relationship? Can we find meaning in life without recognizing that spiritual connection to something bigger than self? So I think, yeah, I think you can find meaning in activities that are not spiritual, like one's career and so forth. I think that uh, exploring and understanding your values in the area of spirituality adds adds a three-dimensional richness. Mm. So why not do that? But it doesn't mean that you can't get fulfillment or purpose or meaning. Why not go for the most you can in Mm. life? And so... Why not be three-dimensional? I think for me, it's important. I identify my values in my spiritual life. So I've got values around my spirituality. And then I have specific goals that are in the pursuit Mm. of values. So for example, reflective walking, reflective Mm. writing, actually actions I can take Mm. that help to nourish that third dimensional element. Mm. So I think it's important. The major psychotherapies that we use as mental health professionals to support healing in people, most of those acknowledge and address directly or indirectly the spiritual dimension. Mm. So that's a pretty oh, that's interesting. cool indication. That's interesting. I mean, that's science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is science that says, you know, healing, one of the avenues for healing is via spiritual nourishment, via the validation, the acknowledgement, and the growth and the pursuit of spirituality. So that's a pretty powerful indicator that it's going to be helpful. Mm, mm. And of course, in in your journey, that connection played a role in helping you find another place for Ken Pakenham. And it, you got into university, you got married, you had had children. As, yeah, you know, I've read where you, it sort of like straightens you up, if you'll excuse the pun, yeah, in some way. But of course, and even in in that life, in this chapter of your life, you still had the question of your sexual fluidity mm. still buzzing around and, mm. and within you. And, yeah, I, and how did that play out within marriage and children? And It wasn't really very much of a problem because I fell in love with my ex-wife and I still care for her very much as a, as a person now. So it was pretty cool to love someone and be loved by someone. I loved having children. I loved my children. So being a husband and being a father was a magnificent, rich part of my life. And 
gender fluidity is and sexual diversity is such that you don't feel as if you're necessarily in one box. Wow. For the rest of your life. Wow. Because being in a box just doesn't feel right because you just, it's too restrictive, it's too narrow. And I didn't, you know, the box of being heterosexual, the box of just being gay, or the box of the stereotypical male, etc., never really fitted. So um, I've, over time, of course, it was how I've always been from child up. I've got used to that flexibility. Sure. Yeah. And um, so... How did your wife deal with that? So we got married with full understanding of my history. Wow. And we thought we would give it a bash, <laughs> give it a go, and we did. And there were many very productive very beautiful and good things that came out. And of course, no relationship is perfect and all relationships have pain and love and caring. So, so you, you know, if you want to love, you also have to be open to being hurt. You can't love without being hurt because I'm an imperfect person and if I love you, I love imperfectly. You're an imperfect person and so your loving is going to also be imperfect. So it's never going to work out like it does in Hollywood in real life. So... Look, sexual diversity and gender fluidity, they add some complications, but they also add some richness. And diversity is the spice of life. And so, yeah. During this time of life, was there some compromise on the authentic self? Well, so I am more than my sexuality. And so I didn't think I was inauthentic in terms of, you know, my all the other parts of my life were were growing and I was pursuing my values. I was setting goals. I was a goal-setting monster. I've got all of the goals and my values recorded on bits of paper. Sometimes they're an organized booklets for over 40 years. And And, you were achieving them? And I was a tyrant. I smashed goal after goal after goal. And all of those goals were in the service of what I believed in my heart uh, I wanted to be as a person. Mm. They were part of how I spontaneously, authentically naturally felt. Mm. So I was authentic. Mm. And so if you've got sexual diversity and sexual fluidity, I never felt that I was being dishonest or somehow wrong or inauthentic being a father, being a husband, because Mm. 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 
I loved it. Are you more authentic now? Than, have you grown oh. to be more authentic now? Is authenticity something that you... I, look, I don't think. I think evaluating more, less, bigger, <laughs> better, smarter, whatever. Oh, I just think that's really... I'm going to slap a, over the face yeah, here, folks. <laughs> I want to smash that one down. You know, it's sort of got this evaluative, judgmental yeah. feel to it. Yeah. And that's unfortunately what we tend to do. We weigh up and we compare and we measure and we evaluate and we say, this is more, this is less. And do you know what we're evaluating, measuring and comparing phenomena that cannot be measured? that cannot be compared Mm. in reality, Mm. that should not be evaluated. Mm. How do you measure Mm. authenticity? Mm. Mm. Now, as a psychologist, I know jolly well about this because psychologists measure everything and anything they can think (laughs) of or get their hands on. And look, there are scales to measure authenticity and that, but a psychometric scale or measure to measure authenticity This is my life and I don't need a scale or a measure to understand my authenticity. And I don't need someone to say, is it better or less than or more than or whatever. I wasn't saying it was a question, Ken. (laughs) No, yeah. (laughs) Ken, we're we're approaching, um, I'm sure we've been, this podcast has gone well over an hour. Allow me to bring it towards a close and and one thing that will arise in these podcasts is just my humble attempt to to try to narrow all that we've discussed into some tangible, dare I say, takeaways if it's possible. So I'm going to give you a single sentence or a front. And if it is possible for you to respond with a suggested action step activity to the phrase that I give you, then maybe our listeners might be able to say, I like that and that's something I need to do more in my life. Let's see how it goes. The first one is a word that hasn't been mentioned, but I think it's been mentioned many times. The gift of perspective. Somehow when you were with your mother, I suspect you still had perspective that there was more than this traumatic moment. The gift of perspective. Well, I don't think it's a gift. I think it's a skill and you can cultivate the skill Uh, It's a powerful skill. Perspective, I would go, I'd qualify that a little bit and say flexible perspective taking. That's what what we want to do. What does that mean? Well, it means that, for example, if we're having a conversation, I'm obviously aware of my own perspective, my own views, my Mm. own feelings and what's happening. Mm. But what if I, for one or two seconds, particularly when I stop talking and I listen to you, and if I go behind your eyes and I attempt to imagine what it is like 
to have your perspective mm. on me, on another view, on an issue or whatever. So it's flexible if I can be aware of my own perspective, mm. move out of that for a moment and mm. see it from your perspective, move mm. back into my, that's in, mm. out. That's flexible, mm. right? Mm. So flexibility is pretty cool because rigid Sure. When the wind blows, when things get tough, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're, you're more likely yeah. to get rolled over. But if, if you're flexible, it's more adaptive. Now, the other thing that is flexible perspective taking is where I'm doing one of those self-reflective activities. And I think far out, there's that thought. There's that memory. There's that image. Whatever's going through my head, but for a moment, I am noticing what's going through my head. Mm. Mm. Now, do you know what's happened in that moment? I have gone out of absorption in mental activity. That is my attention, my awareness is in the activity in my head. You know, we have terms like caught up in thought, bought into the thought, lost in thought, Mm. those terms. Mm. We we know Mm. what that's Mm. like. Mm. Now, if I stand back a little bit, so to speak, and watch the thoughts, I have got flexible perspective. I can go into the image, the memory, the thinking. Mm. And I do that a lot when I'm writing, Mm. for example, a research paper. Mm. I get totally absorbed. But I know mm. I can pull out of that and say, okay, check in what's happening. I can watch the thinking. I can watch what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. I, can, I, can, I can notice physical sensations, what's happening in my That's flexible perspective mm. taking. Mm. Now, that's a skill. It's not a gift. It mm. doesn't drop out of the air. That's almost meditative. So, yes. So, the best way to cultivate flexible perspective taking is to engage in activities that support that. And one activity that supports that is meditational type practices. Mm. And you don't have to join a religion or be a monk to do that. Anyone can do it. But there are all sorts of lots of other self-reflective uh, other uh, self-reflective activities mm. that help to create, I think, p- uh, flexible perspective taking, like self-reflective activities, like journaling, uh, creative writing, engaging in creative activities, being silent in nature, being silent in space, mm. in a space, yeah. Mm. Mm. The, the phrase that came to mind, again, someone else used recently for me, it, it, it's the ability to separate occasionally self from thought. It's, it's, it's recognizing that you're having the thoughts, but by taking perspective, you can recognize that it's just thought. Yes. Let me even simplify it. It's simply observing or noticing thoughts. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. all it is. Does that then give you the choice Yes, as to how potently you allow the thought to influence your influence behavior? Influence you. Dicta- yeah. yeah, determine yeah. you. Yeah, so yeah, 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 that's yeah. exactly what yeah. happens. So I have a line of thinking that just runs through my head at mm. this moment. Mm. Now, if I go into noticing it, mm. I then have a window of choice. Mm. Do I go 
and act in accord with that mm. thinking? Or do I just simply notice it and let it pass? And in that moment, I have exquisite human freedom. Wow. That's human freedom. Wow. To notice thinking, which is conditioned by our life experiences. Now, if I only ever function from being absorbed in mental activity, I'm just a jolly robot. Wow. Conditioned, programmed by my history. Yeah. And so I'm on autopilot. I respond, I act, and I just function like a mm. like a um, mm. robot. Mm. Now, if you don't want to be a robot, here's the key. Observe mental activity. Mm. And in, in observing, mm. you have a choice as to how you behave. And here's the question. It's a little test. What would you use to direct your choice about how to behave once you've observed your thinking? What are you going to use, Bernie, to guide your choice about the action you're going to take? My instinctive response is I may not have to use anything because my values will arise. Yes. Okay. And they will almost well done. unconsciously just say, this is what I do. Well, But I'm yeah, aware. They might spontaneously or you might actually have to deliberately pull up, you yeah. know, and, and sort of go through that little mini yes. self-talk of, yes. okay, what are my values in this situation? Well, How do I want to speak to this person? How do I want to be in this person? Here's the thoughts and here's the bodily sensations. Yes. They come up automatically. Yes. This is part of my yeah. complex history, et cetera. Yeah. But, okay, I've noticed it all. Now I've got this two-second window. Yeah. What am I going to do? What do my values say? So my adjunct is my values would arise almost unconsciously yeah. because they have I have great clarity about them. Yeah. They're, they're so alive within me. And it, provided I have that clarity, I think, they can arise and on other occasions, if I'm still sorting them out and don't have that clarity, then I'll, done, I'll need to reflect. If you've yeah. done the values work, yeah. yes, yes, they will arise. But yes, if, yes. if this is a new, yes. if yes. it's the early part of the journey, yes. then it might be a bit more deliberate. Ken, where do you start if you want to find purpose? If you want to be able to wake up every day and to know what's important to you, where do you start? Clarify, connect with, and pursue your personal values. Next one. Love is a lifestyle. It's not an emotion. Love is a pathway. Love is a way of being. Maybe love is a value. Oh, to ask a question about love is, you know, even the philosophers argue about this and many of the social behavioral scientists. Look, loving is something that is a doing thing. And what informs my loving 
are my values around relationships, family, the community, the environment. And so loving for me is personal and it's informed by my personal values. Where do you start if you're struggling to find love and appreciation for self? Where do you start to enhance your appreciation? Look, I think that the starting point is really opening up with acceptance to all of your experiencing, which meant for me opening up, accepting, and allowing the reality of my sexual diversity, the reality of my gender fluidity, the reality of things that I've done that are now abhorrent to me. So loving self starts with opening up, accepting, and making peace with your inner experiencing, your past, your life as it unfolds in the present. And with that, compassion to oneself, valuing oneself, validating oneself is more likely to arise. Mm. But that's a lifelong process. Never ends. Last one, Ken. Courage to be authentic. To be so, real. Yeah, so that's a value. And, um, you know, that might be important to me, but maybe less important to someone else. And so, like, authenticity is important to me. It may not be so much in the foreground for another person for all sorts of reasons. Because, for example, perhaps authenticity has been nourished and from an early age, and that person has been fortunate to have that nourished, and maybe they've self-nourished it as well. And so it's not such a, a big thing. So I'm careful to not push barrows in front of other people that are important to me Mm. and that may not be Mm. so important Mm. to them. So, like, authenticity is the extent and how that's shaped, the extent to which it's important for an individual will vary for us. So, So you're really asking me to define something or comment on something that may, for example, not be so important to some of your listeners, I think the most important thing to do is to actually identify yourself what your values are. And you know, there are all sorts of tools that help people explore and understand their values. And one of the tools, for example, is a list of phrases or words that essentially list all sorts of different values, 
like being courageous, like being adventurous. Boldness. Authenticity, boldness. And so you can, and so you pull out of that, that list, what stands out to you. Yeah. And then you need, so it's really just uh, uh, an appetizer or a, a trigger to help you refine a little more. So courage is just a word. Love is just a word. Purposes, these are all just words. And I need to make sense of that and know what that means for me. Mm. And that's what your listeners would, uh, that is the challenge for them. Well, dear listeners, you've been a part of the first episode of A Journey with Bernie. I don't know what your experience has been like. What I do know is for those that have ears to hear, I suspect there has been a lot of gems in this episode. For me personally, just to be on the receiving end of watching Ken deliver his answers and to hear him speak so clearly and so eloquently about concepts that some of us find hard to nail. Ken just does it so beautifully. And for me, it's been a tremendous learning and growing experience. And on behalf of this podcast and all of those that have joined it, can I please thank you, Ken Packenham, for all that you've given us in this first episode of A Journey with Bernie. Thank you, Ken, ever so much. Thank you for the invitation. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode of A Journey with Bernie. I loved it. Of course, the contact and connection details of our special guest and any references to resource material, books, or educational sources can be found in the podcast notes. Do go there, folks. Our guests would so welcome hearing from you. Now, for those of you who have previously rung me about joining our forthcoming adventures to Nepal, and those glorious Himalayan trekking trails, it's truly great to have you on board. For those of you that are still interested, may I suggest you visit the website of Global Immersion Travel? That's www.gitravel.com.au. Then ring my equally enthusiastic associate, Taylor Pierce, on 0419-195-953. That's 0419-195-953. Embrace the journey, dear people. Just embrace the journey and enjoy every minute of it. And just remember...